Good afternoon and happy Friday from Eagle Financial. After flirting with uh, new highs on the year, again this week with the S&P 500, the broad U.S. stock market, stocks turned down about four-tenths of a percent today to close out the week uh, up nearly a percent. So the S&P 500 is up year-to-date a little over 21% on the year. So we're still on track for a fantastic year. Uh, there was little in the economic news headlines this week to really uh, continue these violent swings in the stock market other than uh, the mess that we have in Turkey, although uh, Trump was able to get uh, coerce uh, Erdogan into a five-day ceasefire. So we'll see what happens next. It also looks like, you know, uh, one of the things I found interesting is that we have a lot of of expensive equipment on the ground over there and it looks to me from my observation in the news headlines that we did some airstrikes over there to blow up our assets so that ISIS won't be ISIS or the Soviets or Turkey won't be using uh, our military assets in the future. You mean the Russians? The Russians. What did I say? <laughs> the Soviets. Yeah, the, the <laughs> Russians I mean. Okay, so the S&P 500 was up nearly a percent on the week. We closed at 29.86. Uh, oil, oil, gold, and silver were all down a little bit. West Texas Intermediate at 53.73. Gold at 14.94. Still up very nice long on the year, along with silver. Uh, down a little bit today to close at 17.58. Okay, uh, bond yields... Um, with the, uh, with the Fed entering into the short-term repo market to provide liquidity, uh, you can call it whatever you want to. We think there's uh, quantitative easing going on there, again, in an attempt to steepen the yield curve. Uh, and and uh, Jerome Powell did get his wish, and Trump's wish, too, a steepening of the yield curve with the two-year note yield Closing to yield 1.59% today, and the 10-year at one and three quarters. Still uh, ultra low, it seems, but high, higher than uh, any uh, any 10-year yielding security in Europe, including Greece, where their 10 years at 138 and we're at 175. Doesn't make sense, does it, Bill? No, that's crazy. So our 30-year Treasury bond yield. 30 years, top your money for 30 years and you can get two and a quarter percent. Um, that, uh, that's, you know, nearly 50 times earnings. Does it make sense to own 30-year bonds as we've talked about on prior episodes with the interest rate risk if rates, if and when rates go back up, which we and, think. And when you account for inflation, you're earning zero on a 10-year bond. That's correct. You're, you're uh, negative, really, mm -hmm. after inflation and taxes because you pay taxes and taxable accounts. So right. we've got a very compelling show for you this afternoon. We want to talk about uh, something called alternatives and alternative investments. And Bill and I are going to tag team you today on that. But uh, we had some friends of ours show up from um, Arizona and um, maybe I shouldn't have said that. But anyway, they're longtime friends of ours that run, have run a hedge fund, and they're launching a new product, which is going to be out in either December or January, that we thought was really compelling. But 
Bill and I thoroughly enjoyed hanging out with them Sunday evening and all day Monday, and it inspired us to talk about uh, the alternative uh, universe a little bit, but particularly because, you know, with with bond yield, with the stock market at all-time highs, pretty close, up 21% this year, valuations are not cheap. We'd say the U.S. stock market is fairly to fully valued. And bond yields, uh, bond yield, long-term bond yields at 2%, shorter-term bond yields much less on high-quality bonds. It makes you want to search for other things where you can earn a buck or two, right, Bill? And That's we call right. these other things alternatives. So, and I'll, I'll start off with this. Here's my quick definition of an alternative. If you think of, and this is an ever-evolving uh, definition, if you think of owning cash, stocks, or bonds, now think of anything that doesn't fit in that category. Like you it used to be that real estate investment trust and energy securities were thought of as alternatives, but they're so commonplace now that uh, that's not so much uh, a liquid alternative or alternative, but that's a start. So, so where do yeah, we go from here, That's William? a good start. And, and we would simply uh, categorize alternatives as either alternative investments. Okay, think of real, tangible assets, as Jack mentioned, real estate. Um, also, precious metals, raw land, um, those are examples of alternative assets. And then the other category is alternative investment strategies. Think hedge funds. Okay, so these are investment strategies that historically have been limited to institutional investors and high net worth uh, investors. and. Uh, they have offered strategies such as uh, being able to short investments inside of a portfolio. Um, some of the other strategies that are very popular include things like long short, global macro, uh, managed futures, and we'll touch on that some more. And there's all other kinds of strategies. Uh, market neutral comes to mind. Makes me think of uh, a lot of the volatility that we see in the stock market today on a day-to-day -day basis is driven by algorithmic trading. That's true. So a lot of these, a lot of this algorithmic trading is coming from a universe uh, called CTAs. The last time I checked, there were about 1,040 commodity trading advisors, or roughly, a, say, call it more than 1,000 firms in America that manage, uh, run algorithms and manage portfolios using, uh, through trading commodities. And that's what's created some, some gyrations. But I think it also helps to bring liquidity uh, to the markets and keep them honest, you know, as well. So, but those are alternative strategies as well. And, and the reason why you would want to consider using alternatives there's really a couple of broad reasons, and one of those is for true non-correlated diversification. And what I mean by that is, you know, correlation is a statistical term, and it's used to measure how two independent variables move alike or not alike. And a good way to illustrate that is the, uh, the, the two industry economy. Say so if you're on a, a deserted island, well, it wouldn't be deserted if you're on it, right? But if you're on an island and, uh, and, and you're a business person, 
and you have two products to sell, one is sunscreen and the other is umbrellas, those are perfectly non-correlated because you will be selling sunscreen on sunny days and you will be selling umbrellas on rainy days. So the benefit of that is that you have this opportunity. So you always have something in the mix that's going up even though something is going down. And having that non-correlation in the portfolio gives you a free return on your money that you otherwise would not have. And we could illustrate that. We may save that for another day. We, but. we call that mathematically perfect negative correlation. And we learned, Bill, during the subprime crisis that there were really only three things that, that worked that helped us with that. That is, if you own a common stock portfolio, you needed to have very high-quality bonds uh, that, that were perfectly negatively correlated or moved in the opposite direction of a declining stock market. And then there was basically one other asset class, and that's managed, managed futures, futures, the trend-following managed futures space. So I think it's also interesting. I wanted to back up and just say a little bit, William, uh, this stuff all came about, and we're going to enlighten you with a, with a board here in a second, but Drs. Harry Markowitz and William Sharp won the Nobel Prize in Economics, I think it was in 1958, on this thing called the Efficient Market Hypothesis. And, um, and then, so these are uh, utilizing the covariances, this is economic theory, a statistical mathematical theory, the covariances of different asset classes like stocks or bonds or real estate, high yield bonds, mortgages, things like that. And uh, we really didn't have the computing power until the 90s and then Wall Street came out with these what we call optimization programs where you could bring in your statement and you could do that with us today even and we could plot out your portfolio and show you whether it was efficient or not. We're, Bill's about to get into this with us. So, um, and then, so all these Wall Street firms and everyone were using these things called style boxes. Like you need, have to have international, large cap value, small cap growth. But we learned an important lesson during the subprime crisis that this under extreme, uh, extreme selling markets and crisis markets, all of the correlation coefficients tightened up, tightened up to plus one. It means that you weren't really getting diversification benefits because with a correlation coefficient of plus one, it means that all of your, all of the subaccounts or all of the different asset classes in your portfolio are moving in the same direction at the same time and in a bad market, you know, everything, not so good. Everything sold off. So, so where did we, do we want to move to the board over here, William? Well, or? Before we do that, uh, going back to, you know, just the uh, alternative investments in general and how historically these types of investments have been limited to institutional investors and high net worth investors, this whole area has opened up I believe it was 2011, perhaps, something like that. Around there, when uh, we we started seeing these investment strategies being offered and opened in mutual funds. So as before, you can only access many of these strategies if you were high net worth, 
if you had uh, you know, a very high level of money to put into the strategy to meet their minimum investment requirement. And you'd have to be willing to forego liquidity. Well, because these strategies are now offered through open and mutual funds and even exchange-traded funds, um, you can access them without the big requirements up front, and you have daily liquidity. And paying a 2% fee with 20% of the profits. Or in other words, that's if you, what it was before. Yes. Correct. If you if so, if you earned a ten percent gross return, uh, the two and twenty strategy would keep for that, and you'd only net six. Correct. So we we've had a huge evolution here, an influx of uh, hundreds or even thousands of uh, mutual funds or forty act funds and ETFs. Uh, many of them uh, we would call, pardon me, crap. Doggy poo poo, uh, but with with competition, the expenses have come down. We can get them uh, now without commissions. Charles Schwab eliminating transaction fees and with uh, very reasonable expense ratios. Well, I, I would say that we are experiencing a, a Darwinism effect in the alternative investments space. It is survival of the fittest. Um, the early entrants in the space that offered inefficient, um, as you say, crappy products, they are no more. Um, we are seeing uh, better products, lower expense products. Um, but I will say this, it's not a space that you want to venture into willy-nilly. Um, we've learned a lot over the years through trial and error in this space. Um, you know, we. You know, we certainly, you know, advise our clients in the use of alternatives, um, but it's not something that you want to jump into on your own without some assistance. I'll just say that. Yeah, and I, and I might add, Bill, I might jump in there and highlight a, a couple of them. Like, we, we discussed managed futures, and, and again, just to reiterate, why would we talk about managed futures? And this sounds really aggressive, but again, when you put these into the context of an overall portfolio, and William is going to get into that uh, with us here in a minute, it actually reduces the riskiness of the portfolio and enhances return. So most of the managed futures funds out there engage in what's known as uh, trend following, and, in, and what they do is they typically invest in across about 165 different markets that includes global stock markets, global bond markets, global currencies, and lastly commodities that would include things like energy, precious metals, industrial metals, agriculture, uh, wheat, corn, um, things like that. But what they typically do is um, let's say a long-term trend follower might have an approach of they might uh, track these 165 different worldwide markets. Uh, something makes a new high over 18 months. However their algorithm is built, could be three months or a year or 18 months is considered long-term in this space. It makes a new high, they buy it. If it makes a new low over that time frame, they short it. So the intent is if they short it, well, you'd say, why would you sell something that's making an all-time low? Well, if you look at uh, the natural gas space right now, here in the oil space, it's been oil patch here in Shreveport. It's been uh, hugely negatively impacted by these CTAs, Commodity Trading Advisors, 
88% uh, of them today are shorting natural gas. So I'm sure that's had an influence to make the price go lower. But what they do is they short it with the intent to uh, get out even lower by putting in a buy ticket of something that they don't own and canceling out uh, you know, that sell and locking in that profit. Same thing, if you buy something making a new high after 18 months, uh, your goal is to get out higher. Typically, half of these trades are winning trades, half of them are losing trades, but they make a lot of money on 10% of, of the trades. So, And you, you're very diversified in managed futures, but if you think about this, we talked about perfect negative and perfect positive correlation. Think about a stock market that falls 30 or 40 percent. So you have commodity prices likely falling, all stocks falling, international, global stocks, and you have high-quality bonds going up. And interest so, rates going down. And interest rates going down. So, so, um, so that means um, in 2008, when the U.S. stock market fell 37 percent, uh, a lot of these CTAs, trend-following CTAs, made anywhere from 20 to 50 percent. So, and the returns of these things can be lumpy, but they uh, they ha don't have uh, anywhere close to the downside volatility of the U.S. stock market. When since 2000, we've had a 50 percent downturn, you know, three times. That's losing. If you decline by 50%, that means you need to go up 100% to get back to even. Another one, just very quickly, Bill, you know, we love, like, uh, BDCs right now. After 2008, um, bank loans, BD, a BDC is a business development corporation, which has taken the place of commercial banks where uh, mid-market America... Uh, you know, firms in the area of, say, $10 million in EBITDA earnings wanting to make uh, loans with commercial banks. The commercial banks did about 85% of this after the subprime crisis. We had a lot more regulation in that space. So the, a lot of these BDCs, which are publicly traded, a lot of them are listed on the stock exchange and so forth, you can actually uh, invest in diversified portfolios of these, get yields typically high single digit, 7% or more, even double digits. Uh, some of them will use leverage, but uh, and if interest rates go up, they're adjustable rate loans, so the yield on the portfolio should go up as well. And as, as Bill pointed out, there are a million different types of alternatives out there, and that's that's uh, those are two types that we're utilizing right now. So if you if any of our viewers would like to discuss this any further, you know, give us a give us a phone call. But let's continue on with our efficiency conversation, yes. William. Let's really <laughs> geek out. <laughs> okay, so. We haven't used the whiteboard in a while, so it's time. We're overdue. This here is an illustration of the efficient frontier curve. And so we have on this axis the expected return on the portfolio. Along this axis, we have risk as defined by standard deviation, volatility of the portfolio. And this is the efficient frontier curve. So in this curve, we're illustrating a portfolio of two assets. 
stock, and bond. And so what this shows us is different combinations of stocks and bonds in a portfolio and the level of return you could expect as well as the level of portfolio volatility. So actually, and this is what was so illustrative behind this, is for someone who is very risk averse and wants to minimize portfolio volatility, they may assume that the best place for them is to be 100% in bonds. Well, in theory, that's not the case because you can see here where that 100% bond portfolio plots in terms of risk and return. But what if you added a little bit of stock into the mix? If you adjusted this from 100% bond to 25% stock, 75% bond, you see how you move up the efficiency curve, and this is optimal. This is efficient. So you are getting a higher level of return and less volatility than you would if you were 100% in bonds. So this was, this was very eye-opening when this came out in the 1950s. Now, everything on the red part of the curve here is deemed to be optimal. So these, this just illustrates different mixes of stocks and bonds. If you're on this curve, you are considered optimal. This here is suboptimal, sad face. So if your portfolio is anywhere below this curve, and any, anywhere in here, what that means is your portfolio is inefficient. You could be making a higher level of return per given level of risk, or you could be minimizing volatility for the same level of return if you were to simply shift up onto this efficient curve here. Now, anything above this curve, you're a hero. Because what this means, if your portfolio plots above the curve, it means that you are getting more return for a given level of risk than you would even on the optimal curve here. So you're a hero. Now That really doesn't exist, though, William. Here does not exist, okay? Because this plot would be no risk, very high return. That does not exist. Conversely, if your portfolio plots out here, you need to stick to your day job because what you're doing is you're subjecting yourself to a maximum level of risk and you're not making any money. So you don't want to be here. You wish you were here, but you could be anywhere along or close to this curve and your portfolio would be optimized. Now, this is just stocks and bonds. Now, we're going to throw a wrench into things. What happens when we throw in alternatives? things that are not correlated to stocks and bonds. Okay, this is what happens in theory to your portfolio. You have a shift. So now your curve is shifting out. And this is your diversification benefit. So by adding alternatives to your portfolio, you're making your portfolio even more efficient than it would otherwise be if you were in traditional asset classes such as stocks and bonds. So adding the alternative investments 
shifts out the curve, and now you are getting even more return per level of risk or unit of risk, or you are, are reducing your volatility for the same amount of return. And so we're just using this to illustrate that there is a role for alternatives in maximizing portfolio efficiency, but also just to give you access to markets and investment strategies that you would otherwise not be in. Yeah, can I make a comment there, William? Absolutely. I'd just like, let's call this, this is your traditional portfolio here that's 60-40. That would be 60% stocks and 40% bonds. But what if we took this with the use of alternatives? We keep our risk exactly the same. And now this portfolio might be 40% stocks, 20% alternatives, and 20% bonds. And we may have increased our return by two percentage points. So that's what we're trying to do with the use of alternatives. And again, um, if anybody, uh, if anybody would like to further this conversation, you know, give us a phone call or, or write into us and and keep going, Bill. Did you have anything else or, or no? We, are we okay? Who's LSU got this weekend? Uh, Mississippi State tomorrow at at two thirty. I have my LSU shirt on, and and what about the Saints? Who are the Saints playing? Um, we know forgot. We would know. Okay. <laughs> Um, she's drawing a blank on us right now. Okay, we're not Cowboy fans here. We're Saints fans and LSU. Well, uh, thank you for watching. Thank you. And write in if you have any questions and have a great weekend.